Good evening, everybody. Glad to see you here. Uh, it's always nice to have visitors in the audience, uh, people that are wanting to hear the word, and hopefully that's what we're going to get tonight. In the world we live in, we watch TV a lot. Everybody does. And when we watch TV, there's always these ads, aren't there? They want you to buy something or they want you to be involved with something. And one of these ads, they're not showing this as much as they used to, was involving a, a person's background, their ancestry. And so Ancestry.com and AncestryDNA.com was a big seller. Uh, people spent millions of dollars to go back and look at forefathers and understand what was going on uh, before their time, but to their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or whatever. When you think of that and all the money spent tonight, you don't have to spend any money. We're going to look at the Bible, and if you got your Bible, it's free, especially on Sunday night. When you think about genealogy or uh, generations, I wanted to talk tonight about the pedigree of, Je of Jesus. And pedigree is not dog food. It's pedigree of his genealogy and what it means to us. And the reason why I did this is several quarters ago when we were studying Solomon's building the temple, we had lists of all kinds of things, and uh, I know if I do it, everybody else does it. You kind of gloss over those things, don't you? And, and sometimes don't read it. You don't want to read all the Chronicles. You don't want to read all of this with the different uh, people that are involved because you can't say the names or whatever. But there's a lot of meat there, and that's what kind of influenced me to do this. When you look at Matthew, we're not going to look at Luke's, but in Matthew and also in Luke 3 is this genealogy of Christ. When you look at Matthew as a whole, there's a lot there that he's involved with. He's showing you in the very first verse uh, prophecy, Old Testament, and also the fact that it bridges the Old Testament with the New Testament. When we look at the Old Testament, we always say, well, here's the Old Testament, here's the New Testament. But if you really look at it, it's a full story about salvation. If we don't understand the Old Testament, how are we going to understand the New Testament? The other thing is, in, in this very chapter, chapter 1 of Matthew, he, he tells us that it will be Emmanuel, God with us. We also see that farther into Matthew, carrying it on, that his blood was shed for just a few people, just a couple in Jerusalem. It says for many, wasn't it, for the remission of sins. And we know because we're studying Hebrews that this new covenant's better than the old covenant. We know that Jesus is involved with this covenant and it's better. Also, Matthew comes to the end and he says, all authority, just in Galilee, just in Judea? No, heaven and earth, isn't it? So it's a situation that Matthew is setting up to talk to these Jews 
and convince them the importance of the Messiah. When you take it a little farther, his gospel is such that he wanted to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And as part of that, if you take yourself and you're a Jewish person, you're going to be real interested in the genealogy. You're going to find out where this Jesus is from. And he does that in the very first chapter of the very first book of the New Testament. He also talks to us about messianic prophecies with son of Abraham and son of David. And when he does that, that combines us all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? It gives us all that information. Well, why would the Jewish people be interested? If you look at them from a secular point of view, they're looking at this genealogy in a very important factor. Number one, it demonstrates they're the chosen people. And keeping that lineage means that if I'm in that, I'm, I'm part of that chosen people. Also, properly, when you think about it, their property was distributed based on their lineage, based on what tribe they were in. We know that the Aaron priesthood, that it was demanded that it be a biological affiliation. If not, you couldn't be a priest. And in fact, if the priests had some things wrong with them, they couldn't even be a priest physically. So they were looking at all this. They were trying to keep the lines clear so that everybody knew uh, the words were from some of the historians that the Sanhedrin kept this in the temple. And when they kept it in the temple and in AD 70 and it was destroyed, guess what? We don't know who's going to be a priest. But we didn't need it because we got the high priest, don't we? We have Christ. Their military was based on tribes. It was based on the arrangement. If you remember in Numbers, they had the tribes around the tabernacle, and they would, they would move according to those tribes. And we know that the Davidic kingdom of Judah relied on that succession, and it was very important. I'm not going to get into the weeds about the difference in Matthew's account, Luke's account, and others. But what I want to do is give us three points tonight that help us think about this genealogy of Christ and how important it is to us. That we might want to read it next time. The first point is we see in the very beginning that here it is, the genealogy of the son of Abraham and the son of David. And when we go back to Abraham and think about him, it's kind of interesting. David was hitting on some verses I'm going to hit on, so I, we can just re-record his. But here the Lord chooses Abraham because he's faithful, because he's obedient. And we know these promises. They're, even the children know these promises that he would make a great nation. And that happened. He said that they would take over the land, that we always say it was great nation, land, and seed. And we know even in 
when you are studying Hebrews and we're talking about them going on the Sabbath and, and going into Canaan, arrest into Canaan, arrest on the Sabbath, that there was a better rest to come, according to Hebrews, that hadn't come yet, which was eternal rest. So it was important that they understand that, and, but the seed was important. It carried us from the Old Testament all the way to the Messiah. And when we see that in Galatians 3.16, you're well familiar with this, and it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, meaning multiple seeds, what does he say? As many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Abraham didn't always understand this. The, the Old Testament people didn't understand it, but they did understand there was a Messiah coming. And the Old Testament is this preparation. Well, when you look at John 8, 56, let's just turn to that, John 8, 56. Uh, a reference here with Abraham, John 8, 56. Make sure I wrote it down right. In 54, let's start with verse 54 of John 8. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God, in verse 55, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And I say, I do, if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And then he says, your father, Abraham, which the Jewish people would always say, our father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the interesting thing is... These Jews say to him, you're not even 50 years old. You're not even old enough to, to know Abraham. Says, then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then a verse that David even referred to in, in another section, Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That kind of narrows it down, doesn't it? It kind of makes it so that we understand that Jesus was there before and he came as a man. So when you think about this with Abraham at the very first verse, we need to understand that Abraham was part of this promise that goes all the way back to Genesis. Well, when we take it a little farther and we go to David... If you'll turn over to Matthew, we'll go through some of these passages just to um, uh, refresh ourselves very simply from what he's saying. But here is, here is David, and the reference was made this morning and also in Isaiah that says in 2 Samuel 7, 12, says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? Son of David. So it was important for these people to understand from a throne standpoint that he was going to be on David's throne. 
And with that in mind, Matthew goes through this a lot, telling us the importance of this by saying that they say, son of David. Go to Matthew 9, 27, and we're not going to read many verses on this, but it's, it's better to hear it in the context. In 9:27, here he is. He's going to heal two blind men. And it says in 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, what? Son of David, have mercy. They didn't say... Lord, they said, son of David. They knew the title, the importance of David and him following up with David. When you go to Matthew 12, 23, Matthew 12 and verse 23, here we say that we see that they had brought to him one that was blind, mute, and demon-possessed. And Jesus heals him so that the blind and mute both spoke and saw and all the multitudes were amazed. And you know what they said? They said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? That was important that Matthew put that in there. In Matthew 15 and verse 22, you see a situation that a Gentile woman comes up and basically um, she's from Canaan. She comes up to Christ and, and cries to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, what? Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. And it wasn't her, it was her, it was her daughter. The Lord doesn't answer. Disciples say, go away, you're in my way. Then he says, it, I didn't come here to take care of, he does, I'm paraphrasing, to take care of the Gentiles. I came here to take care of the children of Israel. She didn't stop there. She worshiped him. And when she worshiped him, basically saying, help me out here. And he, then he comes around and says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. I'm doing the King James, a new King James version. And she says, you know, even the little dogs can get the crumbs. Even the little dogs that come through, and if you know you have dogs, they circle a table, don't they? Her faith was such that she knew this son of David was Jesus. And he said, basically, your, your daughter's healed. Well, when you go a little farther in Matthew to show you that Matthew knows the importance of this son of David, in Matthew 20 and verse 30 and 31, Matthew 20, 30 and 31, again, two blind people, as they're going out of Jericho, two blind say to him, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And he basically asks them what they want him to do, and he says, let, let me see again, and he heals them. Well, I've got two more. In his triumphal entry, if you just skip over a little bit, in verse uh, chapter 21 and verse 9, it, they said, Hosanna to the son of David as he's coming in. 
uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Here it even carries to the end to Matthew 22 where he is talking. If you'll skip over to Matthew 22 and verse 42. When, when he's talking to these people in verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Then they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does, the son, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord, said to, to my, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is it he is his son? Well, Matthew's explaining that in the lineage, isn't he? The importance uh, of David. When you look at Luke 1.32, if you'll go over to Luke 1.32, we see here that, that Gabriel is going to talk to Mary. And when he talks to her, at first she's a, a little bit frightened. And when you, you can understand that. And here he basically says in, did I put that down right? Luke one thirty-two. He comes in and he says to her, I'm going to start in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Again, this is Rome, uh, Luke 1, uh, 31. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So... Gabriel announces he will be the son of David. So here's two messianic prophecies, Abraham and David, that we see as part of this genealogy. Well, I put this question up here. What about the women? Well, you're going to see some women listed up here. It's not going to be Sarah, not going to be Rachel, not going to be Leah, it's not going to be Eunice, it's not going to be some lady we've read about, Abigail. These are women that were in the genealogy of Jesus. Most of the historians feel like they were all Gentiles. And the more and more I've read, I believe them. When you first look at the first woman in uh, chapter 1 of Matthew in verse 3, Judah's daughter-in-law seduced him. If you remember, Judah had two sons, Ur and Onan. Ur didn't do what was right. The Lord took care of it. He's gone. Judah says, Onan, you need to marry her. Onan messes around, the Lord takes care of that. So she knows she's got to do something. So she dresses up like a harlot and seduces Judah. You, of course, you're saying, why Judah out there doing this anyway? 
But this is part of the lineage of our Savior. <laughs> well, the next one is, it's a, a name that probably every one of us in here, if you say the name Rahab, what do you usually say? You usually say Rahab the harlot, don't you? Here's a lady that was a prostitute in Jericho. When the spies came in there, she hid them. She took care of them. But she wanted to deal. She wanted to deal that she was going to survive this. Her family was going to survive it. Pretty smart. So they did. And when you go to Hebrews 11 and 31, it says, as we all know, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down in verse 30. And then in verse 31, it says, by faith, Rahab, what? Believed what they were saying and knew that the people weren't obeying God and she wasn't going to be part of it and she survived. A harlot. Ruth, when we, when we look in the Bible, we all like the book of Ruth. But Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were hated by the Jews. The word hate is true. I mean, they wouldn't even let them in, in the doors to the sanctuaries. Uh, Deuteronomy 23.3, and you look at Nehemiah and other places, Nehemiah says they wouldn't bring bread to the children of Israel, and they tried to get Balaam to curse them. But the Lord turned it around and blessed them. And Ruth's in this as a hated person, as a Moabite. And then last but not least is Bathsheba in chapter 1 and verse 6. David sees her on the rooftop. He goes and gets her. I'm the king. Bring her over. But it ends up being worse than that because is her husband's a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. And basically he sets him up to, to die in battle. Sarah's not on this list. None of the, the matriarchs that you would think. These are the people. When you think of that, you know what Galatians 3.28, but we'll read it. Galatians 3.28. We know what's happening here. In Galatians 3 and verse 28... This is how mine reads. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, or Jew or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, and some might say bond or free. And there is neither male nor female, for you are all what in Christ Jesus? You are one. And we'll talk further about that in a few minutes. Well... What I wanted to do with the remaining time, and it shouldn't take me more than an hour, is three points of the things we get from this are, are three that I'm going to name tonight to help us out to think about this genealogy. The first one is that God always, and that word always, I guess I should have capitalized, keeps his promises. We saw that he promised Abraham the land, 
the whole thing with the seed, a great nation. And when we think about that, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's turn to Acts 2 and verse 29. Acts 2. Here we are, and Peter is preaching, and he kind of brings it down to the bottom level here uh, on what they need to know in Acts 2 and verse 29. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and in his tomb and is with us to this day. Therefore, this is verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, verse 32, has raised up of which we are all witnesses. You know, to me, if God makes an oath, that's pretty strong. He's God. Why would he need to do that? But he did it according to this with David. Turn to Psalm 132 and verse 11. Psalm 132 and verse 11. Part of this, uh, uh, the whole thing is basically the eternal dwelling of God. And in verse 11, it says, The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it, meaning he's not going to change his mind. I will set up your throne, the fruit of your body. That kind of narrows it down that he, that he keeps his promises. Well, the second thing is, God's plan includes people of all nations, which, which we knew that. If you turn to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, and you, you can read it, part of it up here. I just wanted to make a comment about some of this, though. If you turn to Ephesians 2, and I started with verse 11. Ephesians 2 and verse 11. When you read this with me up there, I didn't put all of verse 11, but I'll read it to you from this. This is the New King James. It says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made it in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. So here they are as Gentiles, and it's saying they were without Christ. That says to us they're Christless, right? Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning they had no state within the chosen people, so they were stateless at that time. Strangers from the covenant, they had no hope, or I mean, no home with a covenant like the children of Israel as a chosen people. And then after the strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope, so they were hopeless, 
and without God. So they were godless. So you see, Christless, stateless, homeless, hopeless, and godless. So what's the remedy? Well, he explains it here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, and some versions say brought nigh by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is our remedy for the separation. Here you have portrayed an ethnic division, a division between two sets of people, the Jewish people that were the chosen people of God and the Gentiles that weren't. And there was no peace there. There was no comfort between the two. And if you really think about it, neither one of them had peace because as we even studied this morning, they couldn't have their sins forgiven under the old law, could they? Priest would, high priest would send out the goat. He would put his hands on the head and they'd send it out to take the sins away. But it never, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sins. Gentiles were without it. But there's an answer with this, with this ethnic division and them being separated, which you can read the whole chapter. If you look at verse 14, he says, For he himself, that's talking about Christ, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, putting death to death the enmity. And we know that when Christ died, that the, actually the, um, I'm trying to think of the word, I guess the, the within the most holiest, that it, that it split. So here are these Gentiles, and we've talked about it, and they're part of God's plan. Well, last but not least, I ask, where are the women? And here I put on here that women have an important role in the kingdom of God. We are blessed here. We are blessed here that we have a lot of ladies that work hard. And a lot of ladies that work behind the scenes that we don't know about, whether it's sending cards, notes of encouragement, a text, cooking food. They do a lot, don't they? When you think of that, it says charm is deceptive, and this is in Proverbs 31 talking about the virtuous woman. In beauty fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You know, it sometimes takes us guys sometimes a little while to figure that out, doesn't it? But you know, there's another interesting thing of this with the Lord. When people look at the resurrection and they look and we understand that Jesus was a human being, he was God with us, just like we said, Emmanuel. We know that he didn't travel very far. He didn't have a home, didn't have a 401, didn't have, didn't have much. 
We know that he died on the cross for us, that he did die. He's buried in that tomb. The stone was rolled over. He rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, there were witnesses, a lot of witnesses. Well, eyewitness testimony is very important. But the Jewish people did not take women as serious, and they didn't think it was good testimony if a woman said it. Well, look at this. Who's the first one that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection? Mary Magdalene. You know, women play a role in the church. There's a lot of things they, they don't do with the leadership in, in the church, but there's a lot of things they do that we don't know about sometimes. Well, as we look at this genealogy, there's really no pattern of righteousness in this pedigree of Jesus. We find seducers, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, Gentiles, wicked kings. David had talked about the wicked kings and wicked, wicked sons a little bit, good kings and etc. Now, this is, this is the son of God. And we're talking about these people are involved with him. In his genealogy, something to think about, isn't it? Well, the answer is Matthew shows us that God can use anyone to what? Bring about his purpose. Anyone. We know from nations that he takes a whole nation and they are all bad and he uses them. We know that as we talked about Daniel, that God's in control. Well, there's a beauty part of this. And this, this is basically a bottom line that these are the very type of people that Jesus came to save. They weren't the aristocrats. They weren't the people that were the most important around there. They were the people that needed to be saved with, because of sin. Tonight, you need to think about that as... That was my last slide. And think about where you are. And think about this genealogy of Jesus that you can be in his kingdom and know, as we've been studying, that he was a better messenger than the prophets. He was better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. A better covenant. A better priesthood who, who makes mediation for you and I. You want to be part of that better. And the way to do that is to come to Christ and obey him and understand that that's the only way. There's two, there's two basic paths, one to destruction and one to life, and the one to life is through Christ. If you haven't put on Christ, you need to. You need to think about that tonight. If you have put on Christ, but you made mistakes, that can be taken care of because now under the new covenant, you have forgiveness of sins. We can do that. But if you're not in the kingdom, you're out. That's the bottom line. If we can help you with any of this, please come forward while we stand and sing.